Hi, it's Scott. And Drew. And we're here to bring you a special subscriber-only bonus episode. Uh, Drew, why don't you explain to our listeners what this is? I'm so glad that you found this. Well, right now, the Toronto Film Festival is in uh, full swing. And a couple of years ago, we were there when they premiered The Ward by John Carpenter. And we went back to the hotel where I was staying, just opened up the laptop, and we just started talking about John's career. That conversation is one of the first times we started talking about doing a podcast or doing something where we talk about uh, older films and films we adored and is in a, a lot of ways the very direct precursor to 80s all over. So because of Toronto, because I found this thing as we were moving some files around, we thought it would be a great one to release to you. And because we love John Carpenter always and forever. Always. Uh, so here you go. It's a couple of years old, but I think uh, you will hear the same exuberance and late night enthusiasm that marks so many of the episodes. Everybody, uh, we were just uh, we just left a, a, a film, and uh, we started talking about how excited we were to see a new John Carpenter film. First one in, I mean, what was Ghost of Mars? What year? Ghost of Mars was two thousand. Right, several several years. Yeah. Uh, so um, you know, we I just said you know instead of just uh, having our normal nerdy conversation, why don't we try and refine it a bit and do it for one of our sites? And Drew said, I like it. So we took some quick notes and we hit record. Two thousand one, by the way. There we go. So almost ten years yeah, since the last time. I mean, crazy that a guy is as talented. And you know, again, we should preface this by saying we're we are horror fanboys, but we are not a pro. Approaching this in that in that perspective, you right. know, we're looking at these films uh, both nostalgically, critically, you know, uh, uh, culturally, uh, and and um, you know, uh, obviously, when you hear what we have to say, we're going to cover his whole career from stem to stern, and we far from love every one of his films, and I think it's safe to say that neither does he. Oh, I think that's very safe to say. Um, it's it's intriguing because th- this whole week I've been hearing people talk about John a lot more than I've heard people talk about John in a while, and I think that's great. I think it's very exciting that Carpenter is um, working on the big screen again. Uh, I've had the opportunity to work with him a couple of times, and um, I. To those listeners who might not be aware, Mr. McWee, uh wrote a very cool episode of Masters of Horror uh, with Scott Swan for John Carpenter, yeah. uh, and uh, also an episode of Fear Itself, which is also quite good, also co-written by Scott Swan. Yeah. And these bastards have been fortunate enough to work with this master, uh, whereas m- my, uh, my perspective on John Carpenter is that he's probably the most influential filmmaker of my life, maybe up there with John Landis and Steven Spielberg. And I, I would say uh, definitely John would count as one of the most influential filmmakers in my life as right. well, even well before I worked with him. Um, let's uh, let's go all the way back to uh, to where John started, which was as a student film that eventually became a feature film, mm. uh, and that's the movie Dark Star, nineteen seventy four. Now the way, by the way, before we begin, we're uh, we're gonna each be writing these different ways. Yeah. Scott wanted to do these as. Uh, out of five stars. I like to rate when I do rate on a five star scale because uh, you can easily extrapolate that to an A, B, C, D, E and you could also extrapolate it uh, to a one through ten. Yeah. I'm not a big fan of quantifying films this way but for the sake of brevity and, and fun I will rate these on a five star scale whereas Drew will be ranking the films in his order from least to most favorite although we will be chronicling the films chronologically. Yeah, we'll be going through and I'll just tell you what number it was on my list and uh, there are 17 feature films that we'll be discussing today. And Drew will be taking a few sidebars where to cover the TV films. We're not going to count those but yeah, we'll talk about the TV movies a little bit but uh, but 17 yeah. feature films and I'll be ranking them from 1 to 17. I'm a list freak. Scott likes to do the stars so we're just going to approach them in a slightly different way. Okay. Uh, so Dark Star, the, f- the first film of his career is uneven uneven the best way to describe it is you know what it is it is a student film yes, kind of, they kind of evolved and, got, yep. and kind of got built onto and it's you know it is a um, it is a really promising it's a ramshackle film but it's very creative and clever it is and it's got a really dark pessimistic sensibility right from the beginning and that's one of the things that is distinct about Carpenter and distinct about a lot of the 70s horror filmmakers is they truly it wasn't that they thought it was a cool ending what if the bad guys win 
they genuinely thought the bad guys had already won. Yeah, what I like about Dark Star, and it's certainly not among my favorites of his, and, and again, it shows a lot of promise, but it's not the kind of Carpenter film that you want to pop in three times a year because it's really slick and fun and polished, but any Carpenter fan should have to check it out at least once. And what I like about it is that it's a dark comedy sci-fi film. And that's right. an amalgam that's just strange, you know? Yeah. That's And it's so low budget and it's so creative to try and figure out ways to pull off the sci-fi stuff and it's cool. It's 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 worth seeing. It's number thirteen on my list. Of seventeen. Right, of seventeen. But and that's I, I because give it a, a three out of five. But that's because it's so technically rough and it's yeah. it's not a great movie. And to be fair, I might I might be short shifting the film because I honestly I don't think I've seen it in 15, 20 years. Oh, I, I've seen it more recently yeah. than that. And I'm if I saw it tomorrow, it. I might hate it or love it more. I don't know. Right. You know? But it's obviously if anybody out there loves Carpenter, and you should be if you're listening to us. Um, you should definitely seek out a copy of uh, Dark Star, and particularly the next feature we're going to talk about is number what on your list, Drew? Number nine on my list. Number nine on Drew's list out of 17, yes. and uh, a film that I give a solid four out of five stars is the... Assault? Classic. Assault on Precinct 13, uh, um, which is a, um, would you say, a loose or an unofficial remake um, well, it, it definitely, it's part of one of John's lifelong obsessions, which is he is... He so is Rio Bravo? Rio, Rio Bravo. Lobo, which I, you know, Rio, Rio Bravo. Bravo. There we go. And he is a, because Rio Lobo is a remake of Rio Bravo. There we go. Um, Thank you. But he is, uh, John is obsessed with Westerns in yep. general, but he never wants to make one because he's afraid of horses and, and just doesn't like the hassle of, of the idea of working with them. Um, which blows me away. Like, I, can you imagine if Kurt and John had ever decided to make a Western together? Yeah, if they had done uh, maybe, uh, maybe like a, a, a maybe like a cross between Silverado and Quick and the Dead is what it would be. Uh, but anyway, he's I, if you look or at actually movies, no, it'd be darker than that. Both of those. <laughs> so many of his movies are westerns in, in oh, yeah. structure and in the trip. Escape the, from New York is little more than a very cool western, but we'll get to that. Yeah. So Assault on Precinct Thirteen is is real Bravo. It's and it's it's a siege movie. It's one of the things that he does well. Yeah. Um, this is the prototype for almost every one of his siege movies that follows, including the one that I, I did with him, our second episode of Masters Pro Life, right. which we knew going in, you can't do that and not acknowledge Assault on Precinct 13 because he did all of it so very well there. Right. Um, there are some great suspense sequences. Again, dark, jet black sensibility. Yep. There's the ice cream scene, the which is... scene, I remember without, you know, uh, to the handful of people who might not have seen it, there is an early bit in the film that is just a shocking piece of violence that most filmmakers wouldn't do. Uh, young filmmakers might, but filmmakers in general try not to do, and it involves a gun and a child. And it is absolutely brutal, shocking, and it, it keeps you... It's kind of like the scene, the early scene in The Killer Inside Me, where once you see that sequence, the entire film is throwing you for a loop. Because yeah. now you know that anybody can die at any... It, it, there are no rules. Right. If you can pull that ice cream scene off, anything can happen in the next scene. Yeah, and in 76 especially, you're looking at a movie that is not uh, playing by the typical rules. But it was, again, sign of the times. John was a young filmmaker. John was an angry filmmaker. There was a lot of that in his early movies. Um, it is probably his most nihilistic film. Actually, almost undoubtedly, is looking at the list here. Because almost everything else he's done after this has... has a, a slightly snarky or lighter tone to it, uh, even even I, the nastiest stuff. We'll, we'll we'll talk about two that yeah. I, I think I would disagree with you on, but we'll get to those. The next film, yeah. is yeah the movie, the movie. I um, call it. I, I a few moments ago I called it better than Psycho, and it's been battering through my mind. And I, I'm obviously it might just be a generational thing. You know, my mother had Psycho, and I have Halloween. Yeah. I think Halloween is, and without any sense of nostalgia or fandom, I think it's easily one of the finest horror, thriller, suspense films ever made, without fail, without question. Uh, it's a five star. It's only one of two films of his entire filmography that I would give five stars to. It's it's my number three film, but those top three films I love dearly. Like yeah. I love each of them in different ways. Yeah, at that point you're dealing with eyelashes. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And Halloween is. It, it's not the perfect slasher film because it's better than any slasher film. It's not the perfect Jalo film because it's better it's than any Jalo film. There's not much slashing in Halloween. I there's mean. not. It's a, it's a film with almost no on-screen violence. And all, virtually no blood. And yet it is terrifying. Yeah. Um, 
my first exposure to Halloween was not seeing the movie itself. It was at the age of eight, same year it came out, uh, Siskel and Ebert reviewed the film. And they showed a clip from it, and the clip was after she stabbed him in the in the uh, upstairs, and she thinks... It's the best shot in the movie. Yeah, and, and, the, and the cue with the music, the way when he sits up in the background, she's in the foreground panting against the door jam, and as soon as he gets up, the score hit. It's a, just a wonderful scene. I just love it every time I see it. It's masterful. I was watching in the back bedroom of my grandmother's apartment. My entire family was in the front uh, living room. I don't even think the clip was done before I was in that front living room yeah. shaking. And I'm my a uncle, years, I'm a few years younger than Drew, uh, but um, I, I, I my first experience was seeing it in probably the early '80s on on Halloween night when it was being played on television, maybe '81 or '82. Um, and I immediately ran out the next day and got Halloween two, which I also like, but doesn't even stand in its shadow. Yeah. Um, but. And every time I see Halloween, it's a cliche to say it, but I like it more. Well, it's interesting because if you saw it on video the first time, because my uncle then, because of my reaction, Mm. my uncle thought it was funny and took me to see the movie without telling anybody. Oh, that's a a good uncle. I was eight. Yeah. And I saw Halloween. Yeah. And I lost my mind. Well, I think all real horror geeks have a couple of moments where... They see horror films at ages they shouldn't. Yeah. I saw Friday the 13th a lot younger than I would let my child see it. Yep. Me and too. I didn't, you know, some people would say it did damage me. Some people would say it didn't. But, you know, somebody would say to me, uh, would you say that Friday the 13th Part 2 is okay for a 10-year-old kid? I'd say no. But that's when I saw it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so Halloween was that way for me. I saw it at 8 and I saw it theatrically. If you saw it on video first, you didn't even see the widescreen Halloween until nope. when? Oh, God, Years later, years later. That's amazing because yeah. the, so much of the impact it's of John's movies yeah. is the composition. Absolutely. And John is that first. God, Halloween is flawless. Halloween is a beautifully composed movie. He uses neighborhood streets yeah. in a way that nobody ever has. I mean, and this is this is what a a, a good but accessible filmmaker can do. I'm watching Halloween for the five, six, seventh time at 14, 15, 16, whatever. And I didn't know what the word montage was. I didn't know what subtext was. But there's that little sequence at the end where he just runs through all the different locations where horror took place earlier yeah. that evening. The and stairwell, the bedroom, yeah. and they're all quiet and empty. And I didn't know why, but I remember thinking, even as a kid, God, that's creepy. Just that empty stairwell that was just 10 minutes ago, Horror Central, and that porch, and that bedroom, and that, ugh. Yeah. Yeah, and then, like, you know, why would a filmmaker necessarily think, hey, I'd like to throw in a montage of empty rooms right here. That's clever. You know I mean? That is. That's simple and clever. Uh, you know, we're going to spend more time talking about the classics than we should, probably. No, but that's, that's, it's true. It's the reason that the movie has the impact is because his filmmaking craft was so off the hook right at the beginning yeah. I, like he hit it so hard right then he took a step back he made a couple of TV movies after that yeah. and the TV movie someone's watching me and then Elvis um, really it's hard to believe it's the same John Carpenter who had just come off of the most successful independent movie of all time yeah um, but it kind of shows you the power that filmmakers ultimately have versus finance. Now imagine though, if John Carpenter made Halloween today and it played at the film festival and everyone went crazy for it, yeah, would his next two jobs be TV movies? No. <laughs> it's no. so weird how it was back in the late seventies. Yeah. Like you'd be going on to something ten times the budget of Halloween, not TV movies. Now I'll, I'll say that Elvis, one of the two TV movies, I know was very personal for him. I know he yeah. grew up, he loved Elvis, and it was also if he had made Elvis. Much of the rest of his career would have been different. Yeah. Because Elvis put him together with Kurt, Kurt Russell. Russell and so and it's a great performance by Kurt. It's the moment Kurt became a grown-up. And if you consider it, Elvis was 79. Four years earlier, Kurt was doing Disney movies. Yeah, real broad Disney comedy. Like yeah. he had just stopped doing them mm-hmm. and then Meets John Carpenter, does Elvis with him, and you know he's stuck in Carpenter's head while Carpenter went off to make his next movie, which is number eleven on my list. Number yeah. eleven out of seventeen. Yeah. Wow, dude, that that hurts. I'm, I'm not. I'm not a fan. I am a massive fan of 1981's The Fog. Yes. Uh, I think it is a. You know, I, I think it's flawed. I mean, 
Film Critic 101, you can see the editing scenes and the and, and how it, and, you know, especially between Act 2 and 3, how it kind of just jumps around. Yeah. And then, like, let's just get everybody in the church and, you know, have a big ending. Uh, it is a mess, and I didn't know until much, well, not entirely, but certain sequences are. Um, and, you know, there's the driftwood bit, which sure works in an isolated moment, but makes really no sense in the rest of the film. Yeah. Um, I always knew that it was a little clunky and weird, but I didn't know until I was much older and DVD came out that and, and John Carpenter and Deborah Hill did a very forthcoming commentary about the serious problems they had with this movie. And ironically, that just made me like it more. You know, like, I didn't know that they went in and added all the blood and guts later. Mm. I don't think the film needs it, but I still like the creepy shit. I still like that gory stuff. See, I think there's great atmosphere in the movie. Yes. I do. I think there's I think there's moments that have phenomenal atmosphere, and his use of fog... It's interesting that we're talking about the fog right after seeing Vanishing in 7th Street, because fog is almost all practical in that movie. And it's yeah. all just fog and light. Yeah. And it's really creepy in places. I just wish the film around it added up. Yeah. Like, I, I understand the attraction people have to the fog. I even understand why somebody would want to remake the fog, because there's <laughs> something about the imagery that is really potent. I just don't think the movie quite supports those images. Yeah. I, I mean, I don't know the full... I, I, I don't remember the full stories, but, you know, essentially... Uh, they didn't have. They didn't have a finished script. They 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 uh, were told by the studio we want more gore, uh, more kills. So they added all the stuff at sea. Yeah. Um, and you know, for me, the movie has. I mean, it opens with this wonderful John Houseman moment uh, where he's telling the kids a creepy, creepy story. Great campfire story. Great, great story. Uh, and and you know, it has a great. Cast. It's got Adrian Barbeau and Tom Atkins and Jamie Lee Curtis and Janet Lee and, yeah, and certainly the the right idea is you know New England town with a secret and they all and they're gonna all pay the price. So different than Poltergeist a couple of years later. Yeah. yeah. Except in execution. I also believe it's one of Carpenter's most underrated scores. Uh, it's a great score. There's I a bit. The score yeah, all the time. There's a bit. There's a bit towards the end when I believe it's Atkins and Curtis are trying to drive out of town with the kid. And then they just come up against a huge wall of the fog. And his score by that point is just nothing but like a rhythmic pounding. Mm -hmm. And it is, you know, it would work better in a better film, yes. But man, do I love that moment. It's, it gets me every time. Um, All right, so yeah. the, uh, the fog I give three and a half out of five, but four if I'm talking nostalgia. Okay. Uh, not I, bad. I think it's a messy, messy movie, and it's not his, you know. It's certainly not an entire piece, but I do love that film. All right. The next movie is the 1981 film. Fog was 80. Then oh, 80, Fog was 80. My mistake. Then 81. Same year as Raiders of the Lost Ark. And I remember that because I went out as the character from this movie for Halloween that year. An 11-year-old kid. And I dressed up as this character. I was so excited. And every house I went to, the, par the parents asked me, what are you supposed to be, Indiana Jones? And, you, and, every, and I was and losing... And all the houses that, that got the joke said, I thought you were dead. Yeah, not one house got the joke. Okay, uh, of course, what we're referring to is what I consider a four-and-a-half-star action classic, the futuristic Western adventure action craziness known as Escape from New York. Escape from New York, number five on my list. I think it is... Big fan. Snake Plissken rules. Man, it is. if there's such a thing as comfort movies, this movie is a blanket and a pillow <laughs> and a, a cuddly little kitty cat on your lap. Well, it's, it's a great man on a mission movie. And yeah. there's nothing better than a good ticking clock. Yeah. And here, the president has crashed yep. on New York City Island, which is now a prison. Yep. And you got to go get the president. And if you don't, your fucking head's going to explode. Right. And it's got my favorite bit, which is as he goes along, he picks up a, a colorful group, group of... of uh, not necessarily uh, friends, but sidekicks and and uh, uh, their own agenda, right? Ernest Borgnine and and Harry Dean Stanton and Adrian Barbeau again. Uh, it, and it's just so many iconic, colorful characters. Uh, the action is great. They find a way to get a, a crazy boxing, well, not a boxing, but a boxing ring yep. into the film. And they have the normal shootouts and chases. The, the stuff on the bridge, as uh, as each of these goofy, iconic characters do, makes their sacrifice to help Snape escape. I mean, it's all just so pulpy, comic book fun. There's And it's a perfect tone. I mean, it's a scary movie. 
there are mean, horrible people in this prison. Oh yeah, yeah. But it also the whole movie has a smirk. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it's fun, and it is the moment where Carpenter and Russell went, oh. Yeah, that's how cool you are. Yeah, I get it. Yeah, and so yeah, they immediately turned around, and in 1982 made my number one film on my list. Yeah, and in my opinion, one of the very best horror films of all time, an adaptation of John W. Campbell Jr.'s "Who Goes There," the thing. Yeah, it's the uh, of the second and last of the five star films that that, that I would call. I, I think it is a perfect. Horror film, if there is such a thing as a perfect horror film, I, I'd say this is one. And this is it. Talk and, about you know, a painful birth. Yeah, I, I. Oh, get into that in a second. Uh, uh, what What I love about the movie is not the iconic or infamous or not infamous, wonderfully famous gore, right. including involving the dog and the surgical scene and the blood test and just just Rick Baker's amazing monsters. Just just to look at them screaming and stretching and gooing and fourteen. Yeah. Yeah, Botine. Mm. Oh, I said Rob Botine. I'm, yes. I'm, I meant Rob Botine, not Rick Baker. My fault. He's was supposed to do it. It's right? the, yeah, it's the other. That's different. how Rob Botine got his career, basically, because Baker was doing American Werewolf yeah. or something and yeah. couldn't do it. Right, and then took forever. Mm. I like. I didn't even understand until really talking to John about it years later that they shot the thing. They didn't have anything that worked. None of that shit worked on set. What makes the thing scary is not the monster. It is the isolation. Oh, yeah. That's what's great about it. That's what works in Alien. Is that, imagine you're in a haunted house and you literally can't escape. Like, where are you going to go? There's no escape. Yeah. And you that's the beauty of it. You, you know, the clever idea that your best buddy standing right next to you might be an alien in disguise waiting to kill you is horribly creepy. But then you put it in a setting where if you run outside and just try and take off, you'll be dead in two hours. And the other side of the equation that makes it so scary is if it gets out. Yes. That's the bigger picture. Yeah. It's not just, it, then, you know, the great yeah, part about the movie is Right now, so is it. Yeah. The second act is, are we going to survive? And the third act is, we're probably not, but we have to stop it yeah like and that's heroes you know that's creed that's that's you know heroes in horror that's what's really fun about the movie and you know they they deal with i think all the options that exist i i will never stop loving the shots of wilford brimley inside his little house now let me inside i'm feeling better i'm feeling much better let i want to come inside i want to come inside with the noose hanging behind, yeah, him. behind him and no Ooh. no he's no, no, oh, crazy yeah no oh, references made and it's it's like because you know having seen the film that he was the monster yeah. uh, you start thinking about that's creepy that's how the alien is trying to reason with us you know I'm okay now like that's all he says like if it was me or you we would know how to plead our way out of that and an alien oh we don't have to get into the minutia it's it's a it's an absolute classic I mean obviously if you if you can't take extreme gore. Uh, in the context of the film, though, I it's think more it's fun than ugly. Yeah, yeah. I think it's beautiful. I yeah. think the film is so surreal, and it's funny because I have so I have like uh, some of these sculpture figures that they've made. Yeah, from the thing. yeah. I have the uh, spider head yeah. creature. I have a couple of the others. I have the big twisted Blair monster. Yeah, I know exactly the one. Um, and they're in my room. They're in ver- they're on various shelves in my room. The kids love them. Yeah. Alan, my two year old, will ask dad. Pick me up. I want to see the spider. Yeah. And he just thinks it's a spider that looks really cool. Now, now to, to play the obnoxious advocate, Drew, I'll ask you this. Do you think that it's possible that the most talented CGI artists in the world could create something that would affect fans 25 years later like the effects in the thing? Here's how I think they'd have to do it. Not tell anybody what they did. I think, yes, I think you can, given the time and the resources. Rob had a year. After they filmed the principal photography, a year to make those effects work. Right. And it drove Carpenter fucking nuts, drove the studio fucking nuts. But the result is he shot all of them perfectly. Yeah. And they work perfectly. There's just something about the way the light bounces off the goo that's on the latex that jiggles like real monster wood. We know it's fake. We're not stupid. We're watching a film. We know the monster is fake. But if it looks real, it is real. Here's here's what will answer the question. When we see Guillermo's at the Mountains of Madness. Yeah. Because that will be the moment where we'll see somebody take CG and apply it to a Lovecraftian horror world. Yeah. 
in 3D that we've never seen before. And I'm not an anti-CG crusader. Yeah, I'm not. If it works, it'll be unfucking. Yeah, I think CG can be a freaking wonderful tool. Yeah. You know, I mean, how do you do Gollum without CG? And how do you add great little just nuances and touches to your production design without a CGI? The problem is, I don't think that even the best CG in the world would impact a horror fan as much as the tactile latex goo. Well, I think, for I, lack of a better I think term. you're smart to use both. Yeah. I think it's yeah, the, the one should complement the other. I agree. All right. So then in 83, he moved on. And um, the I, only time these two horror masters work together, I believe. It, it is, and it, it will remain so. Uh, not a lot of love lost between these guys. Oh, is that, a, is that true? That you're is, saying that uh, there, was, there was bad blood on the set of John Carpenter's Christine? I, I would say that uh, Carpenter... Uh, I think both of them went through rough phases right around then. Right. And I think uh, I think King has written extensively about his rough phases back then. Um, and, yeah, I don't think they got along at all. Okay, fair enough. Uh, now, having now, said that, I really like Christine. I like Christine a lot. I think it's a great adaptation of King's book. It's one of my very, very – I've read up until the last half dozen – I read literally every word ever written by Stephen King, and Christine is in my top five. It's, it's a strange book, but I love it. It's a good adaptation. I think they get oh, pardon me. I think they get way more of it right than wrong. I and I think wrong. It's just that it gets a little at the end. It gets a little pedestrian. But that's you can kind of feel financiers' hands on it. Yeah. But during during the early stuff, and Keith Gordon, his performance Keith in the Gordon movie is fantastic. They all awesome. are actually. All yeah. the three leads Stockwell, are all good. Stockwell's very good. Stockwell's a little stiff, but he's playing a guy who's a little stiff, yeah. so it's acceptable. Um, but Keith Gordon, it's a tour de force. Like, yeah. Keith is amazing. He's a great actor. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I mean, he's more a director these days, but... Uh, and a great he, director. Yeah, very consistently a good director. Yeah. But, but uh, I've never seen Keith Gordon, I don't think, in just, just plain old lazy. He's always good in stuff. Yeah, it's, and it's, I, I love the uh, John Travolta lookalike who plays Buddy Repperton. Yeah, no, what I love is and, Robert Prosky. Yeah, Prosky's great, and the car is a Robert Prosky, for those wondering, is the garage mechanic who in, introduced me to the line, it might have been in the book, but I don't remember. Introduced me to the wonderful line, you can't polish a turd. <laughs> but I, I love the uh, I love the car. I think the car, oh, the car is a thing. I'm not even a car guy, but that thing is sexy. It's, <laughs> that, it's sexy and it's scary. It, it is it's shiny the, and old school, beautiful. Right car. Yeah. Um, Christine's fun. It's number seven on my list, actually. Yeah, I, I, like I have a lot. lot of regard for that one. I, I think it's it was probably really hard for both of them. You know, for, uh, well, maybe not so much for King, but for Carpenter, he always likes to make it his own. I mean, that's why a lot of his films say John Carpenter's in front of it. Yeah. Uh, and for him to come under a, not a Stephen King book that was popular 15 years ago, but a Stephen King book that was on the shelves now. Yeah. Uh, to turn that into his own adaptation, please both fans, was probably tough on him. He's like, he likes to do his own thing, his own script with his own people. Uh, so I can imagine it was tough for him, but I, I think it's a very good adaptation. Very good. Now, 84... I give it four out of five, by the way. Do you? Yeah. That's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's pretty consistent. Yep. Um, his next film in 84, uh, this is the movie where, and I've, I've told you about this, but this is the movie where I met him for the first time. And I got to actually see some of this movie shoot. So you, you, uh, so wait, but after work, after working with Kurt Russell several times, yep. uh, John Carpenter, who clearly has great taste in leading men, uh, and I don't mean that jokingly, uh, turns to another, an actor that I've always felt was oddly similar, maybe just because they're the same in age or I've, they've just been heroes of mine forever, is Jeff Bridges. And got him his Oscar nomination. Got an Oscar nomination for the very sweet, uh, obviously inspired by E.T., but still its own film. Well, not not inspired by E.T. No? No, it was actually developed at the same time as E.T. at a different studio. And when Steven Spielberg left Columbia to go to Universal, he asked them, can I take the script that I'm working on, can I take E.T. with me? And they said to Universal, well, we'll trade you some project. So yes. They traded them Starman. Right. I vaguely remember that so story. Columbia, I'm so glad you're here. So Columbia <laughs> made Starman. Universal made E.T. They, they were developed kind of simultaneously. Right. One of those uh, deep impact Armageddon things. Yeah. And and certainly E.T. was the larger impact in the, the pop culture. E.T. was a phenomenon. Right. Starman was a hit. 
And it Starman's did well. a damn good film. E.T.'s it's better. A, yeah. E.T.'s better. But Starman, <laughs> yeah, Starman's more about a person. That's the thing. It's an alien who becomes a person and goes through that thing. And I look at a lot of performances. I, I was just watching the other day, I was just watching a uh, Supernatural, the uh, the series. I was mm-hmm. watching the fifth I still have to catch up on it. I was watching the fifth season, and there's a character in that who is an angel. There's a lot of fucking angels walking around Earth in that, that season. Are you like the curse on your podcast? Sure. Okay. Fuck that. But there's there's ooh, there's a uh, one in particular who um, is a uh, uh, an archangel, and his act over the course of the season as he's acclimating himself to the human vessel that he's wearing, it's so stark. It's so very Starman. I can't look at somebody pretend to be human in a movie without thinking about what Jeff Bridges does right. because I buy completely that he's a guy. Who or he's a thing who is trying on human skin for the first time. Right. I, I always considered that, you know, E.T. is a movie about a lonely kid, and Starman is a movie about a lonely woman. And, Very much so. Yeah, and I think um, there's some stuff in Starman that's kind of obvious, you know, like the whole deer thing, the resurrection, and you know, but it's e. really a sincere movie. Like you know, the Karen Allen character is. The screenwriters and John Carpenter love that character. They adore her, and they don't. You know, uh, obviously, the alien lands on Earth and takes the takes the shape of her late husband uh, through a photograph. And that, in and of itself, you know, it's it, it, there. That's a clever idea. It could have just been he shows up and takes a human form and looks like Joe Schmo, right. but he takes the form of her dead husband, and that's what makes it more interesting than just ET for grownups. Well, and it helps that Karen Allen is awesome. In it. She is wonderful. She's, awesome. she's a great, a really good run in the early eighties. And, and I world class crush on Karen Allen. Oh, and, did you know? And now she's adorable in those movies. Yes. Yep. yep. Um, uh, I remember not being uh, as a young kid, not being really that quote unquote into. Karen Allen, like she was tomboyish or something. As a kid, I didn't think much of her, and now I look back on that and want to kick myself in the ass because <laughs> I think in, the, in like Raiders of the Lost Ark and Starman, she is nothing but adorable and a great actress, yeah. a very good actress. Animal House, Animal House. Yeah, but uh, all right. So then, moving on to eighty six. Yeah, eighty six. Okay. Now, at this point, uh, Carpenter, Mister Carpenter, we should say, had done had just done like a wistful sci fi adventure. Who's working for the studios? Right, Universal. I don't care who he's working for. I'm just kind of checking the genres and subgenres. Before that, he did automotive horror, and then he did. And before that, he did Antarctic horror. Yeah. Uh, and then before that, he did uh, you know a post-apocalyptic sort of prison rescue. Yeah. Before that, two horrors, and then before that, another action. So he's now due for basically soup. Well, and this is this next one is a movie that he took an, another bunch of genres that he hadn't really worked in yet that he loved. Because he's one of those guys. He would blaze and watch late night television, and he would love kung fu movies. Right. Desperately. I love just, them. The film we're talking about, of course, is Big Trouble Little China. And I just remember thinking, as I'm seeing the trailers and the ads, I said, it's an action movie. It's obviously a comedy. All right? It's like a quest adventure. There's monsters in it. Um, what isn't this movie? Like, what doesn't it have? And, man... I can't imagine the 14-year-old in 1985 who could not fall in love with this movie. But it didn't hit, man. It was crazy because 86 was a brutal summer. And I, I was working in a theater that summer. 86. And 86 was the same summer as The Fly. 86 was the same summer as Aliens. There was some good... And 86 was pretty much owned wall-to-wall by Top Gun for mainstream America. Right. But... Like Aliens and the Fly both were other Fox releases. And I think Fox early on decided they loved those two movies. They didn't really get Big Trouble in Little China. And so it did not get the same support. Is it a I believe it's true that Big Trouble in Little China began its life as an as a planned or purported sequel to Buck Rubanza. Um WD Richter. Uh, it's a mistaken conception. Okay. Uh, and the conception is W.D. Richter did write an original script for Big Trouble in Little China, but it was originally a Western set, period. Okay. And it was the same story. Jack Burton rides into town, gambles. His friend Duck is one of the guys building the railroads. It was the Chinese mysticism of the guys working on the railroads and all that stuff. And it was San Francisco. Okay. So the only thing John really did was just kicked it forward about... 
I moved to seventy five years. Yeah. And then made it Chinatown instead of the Chinese camps for the, the railroad workers. Um, and so yeah, it was it started life as a different script, a W D Richter script. And Richter was the guy behind Buckaroo Banzai right. with Earl MacRouch. And uh, yeah, it's got the same kind of crazy energy as Buckaroo Banzai, where it's all this pulp shit that he loves, all mashed up together and just pure energy. I think there are things in Big Trouble in Little China that nostalgia kind of clouds for us, though. I don't know. I've watched it's them. Got a, it's, it, I mean, it's... I love introducing it to people who haven't seen it before. Yeah. Because I love watching their reactions. Like, I'm, I'm just thinking, how much better would that film be if, like, three or four of the supporting characters were interesting? Well, what I love about the movie is that everybody else in the movie is heroic except Jack Burton. Yeah, no, that's the that, best part. Is yeah. that he is not a hero. He yeah. bumbles and stumbles his way through the. Int- well, he's a hero in that he, he cares and he tries, but he has no skill as a hero. Not at all. <laughs> he's constantly knocking himself out and falling down. Well, he sits out the main. He sits out the big event. Yep. The big event at the end of the movie. It's Dennis Dunn doing backflips and kicking. People right, and- but when it comes right down to it, he pulls out. Jack Burton pulls out that awesome knife move. Yeah. And takes low pain down, you know, and call it luck or whatever, but that's how, you know, that's that's the Pork Chop Express, baby. So that's that's number two. On that's list. number two on your list, and I still give that, uh, structurally, I, I still think it has problems, I, I mean, but it seems like such a dumb thing to say about a movie as fun as Big Trouble in Little China. I, I, I mean, find that movie to be a pure hit of candy. It is just unbelievably entertaining. I, I just wish, I don't know, it just, I don't know, I, there's, I don't know. I don't know. I still give it four out of five stars, but there's something about it that prevents me from putting it up to, like, Escape from New York territory. Now, uh, this next movie. Yeah. We're going to jump ahead to, okay, now I think at this point we're going to hit the point where... Things are going to get rough for Mr. Yeah, Carter. let, let, me, let's st- let me do a quick recap here, because if I'm not mistaken, you could almost say, okay, take out Dark Star and Precinct, because those are both very early in his career. Right. But if you go Halloween, The Fog, Escape from New York... The Thing, Christine, Starman, Big Trouble. That's as good a run as any director's ever had. Any genre. Yeah, okay? that's a good one. And, and, except for maybe The, the, the Fog that some people might not like. Aside from that, any Carpenter fan will agree that those are all good or great films. But here's where we get to the films that some people will love, some people will hate, and I know a lot of these, I'm dead in the middle. Yeah. Uh, Drew and I argued about this next one on Twitter a few weeks ago. It was 1987's yeah. Prince of Darkness. Yep. 1987's Prince of Darkness, which is number... Escape from New York was number five on my list. Yeah. Prince of Darkness number four on my list. Prince of Darkness is the fourth best John Carpenter film, in your opinion? In my opinion. That is inexcusable, coming from a screenwriter. Inexcusable. No, no. If you wrote... The gobbledygook that permeates that film, I would punch you in the face. <laughs> that movie has some really cool ideas and some really cool visuals and kills and smart, interesting ideas about how, you know, Satan might have been captured and is alive in modern day. But man, it gets so mired in scene after scene of literal gobbledygook. Literal, metaphysical, pseudo religious. I think there's a lot less than you think there is. Okay. I think I think there's a lot less of that than you think there is. I, I there's, there certainly is. And when they're talking, what I love about it is the any idea of the dialogue scenes inside the museum or the church. Any of those dialogue scenes would just nonstop talk about the rotoscoping DNA does not match your qualify. See, here's, here's why I don't agree with you on that. I think what it is is a really interesting. There's a really interesting notion in that movie, which is the mix of the world of physics, actual particle physics and hard science, and the world of metaphysics. I, I like with that. religion. And, I like no. And the way, I like that. And yeah. the way they start those debates, and the way those debates start to take place, I think those are really interesting conversations. I don't think everyone's necessary, but I do think there's some really interesting conversations in there about the fact that maybe it's different languages to describe the same thing, right. and yeah. that's where evil exists. Is right, in that but middle it's ground. far from the first film that tries to marry science with. with oh, I just like with, the way they do it with mythology. And ultimately, we are talking about a film that, not to just be snarky, but we're talking about a film that alleges that Satan is alive inside like a swirly 7-Eleven canister. Yeah. Oh, no. He's green goop in the base of, basement of a church somewhere. Like, that's just silly. Why would he be green goop? Why wouldn't he be? 
why, why would having he, said that, yeah, I mean, as having, having form in this universe, having admitted that I do not much care for the film, which I do give two and a half out of five stars just for its ideas, I and for the reason I'm about to say, there are a few sequences in this film that show a vision of one of the characters, and it gradually gives you more and more and more throughout the film. I don't know if it all adds up to that much in the end, but on their own. Those little black and white visual images are some of the scariest shit he's ever done. That's that, the, that's, yeah. that's the apocalypse. That's yeah. John's apocalypse. I love those moments. They were they're like those 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 um memory moments in Event Horizon that just shock you and and like you totally remember. Oh, I can remember exactly what those static shots look like. And I remember even seeing the film as as a fan later, going, God. That is such a creepy idea. It needs to be in a better movie. In a movie with like we got we got these smart ideas about physical versus metaphysical and science versus religion, and now we got Alice Cooper eating crickets in a pet store. What? What movie? Like that's three movies there. That's it's just a mess. I don't know what happened on that movie. I I will I will go with that film because of its incredible, sustained, oppressive mood over movies that have a better story structure because I really think in that case so there's something fair defense there's no, something about God, the, the moment where the dude is calling up from the courtyard and he's talking about um, I have a message for you and you're not going to like it and collapses into the stack of bugs in front of them. Right, but you're, I mean, like... Holy fucking but shit. Would, would a minion of Satan say that or would, is that something that just sounds cool in a trailer? I have. So, I mean, that sounds a little witty for a minion of Satan. I don't know. I have something to tell you, and you're not going to like it. I mean, that's something your wife tells you. That's not what Satan says. I don't know. And it has a wonderful final shot. I'll give you that. Oh yeah, it does. It is. It involves a foot. I'll tell you. That, I'll, I'll tell you what. When you come to LA, we'll go to the church. Uh, I will. It's been three or four years. I am. Fr- it is fresh in my mind. I am convinced there's more gobbledygook than you do. But I will, of course, happily watch it again. Uh, there's no, no John Carpenter no, no. film. I will we'll go to it. that church. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Is I'll take you to that church. It's very. Oh, no, I'm glad that we, we strong. We, I'm glad that we relatively uh, strongly disagree on one. I, I think that uh, now the next one is not yeah. a not a universally popular one, but it's one. Uh, you said universal, but it has become more popular. Oh hell yes. Really, Oh uh, hell yes! And there's there is now they live. Yeah, and there is a cult now for they. Live. Oh, absolutely! It's a cult film. Yeah, and and uh, you know, to me, it's a it's like a fun blue collar action movie combined with some very clever sci fi ideas, and they're both cool. But I don't think they work together in the same film. Like I love the whole idea. Love it to God! I love the idea of aliens coming here and planting subliminal messages and things mm-hmm. in billboards and in, in audio cues. God, is that a cool idea? But why why do you settle that movie with Rowdy Roddy Piper fighting people in an alley for ten minutes? That's not the same movie. I, it's two different is, movies. That alley sequence is I will wonderful. Ar- it I is. will argue is one of the best metaphors of John's career. Metaphors, yeah. Do you know how hard it is to make people see the truth, Scott? Oh, yeah. You well, have to kick yeah, the shit I out get of that. that, but if that's the metaphor you're making, then it's made 60% into that fight, and the rest is oh. just him having fun. Oh, of course. Of course. He's having fun in that yeah. sequence. There's no And doubt. it is fun. Oh, it's a great, it's a well-shot fight. It's funny. It has a point in the film. And the I just that it, think that that film is a different one than the really cool sci-fi film. I, I don't mind that even when he has fun in each of the segments, as long as each and part of it here's a question for me. They Live, which I give three out of five stars. It's number six on my list. Really? Yeah. Three, a solid three, maybe three and a half for Meg Foster's creepy ass eyes. But I've seen They Live probably seven times. I can't remember how it ends. Oh, it's because it has the worst ending of all time. <laughs> but it has the worst ending of all time. It's they take out the antenna and the last three shots, it cuts to a, it cuts to a couple of houses where people are watching TV and suddenly they're revealed as aliens. Mm-hmm. And the last shot of the movie is a chick looks over at her boyfriend who's just fucking her. Yeah. And he's an alien and he says, What? Yeah. And it cuts the ball. Right. As if to say, we've now exposed all these aliens, and the most interesting angle we can find is that a woman is screwing one. Yeah. 
It's a terrible ending. It goes nowhere. Uh, and that's the that's the thing. Is there a film you've seen five times and you still can't remember how it ends? Yeah. That's that's weak. From the moment Meg Foster tosses him out the building, like when he gets down underground and he's just wandering around and nobody really stops him, it just it just totally runs out of steam. It does. It peters out at the end. It's still, but there's so much that I love. No, there it. is. It's a film I like. Now I don't. We, I don't love. No, I like it. We drop from number for me number six. To number fifteen. Yeah. Well, this, this is movie. an anomaly. Um, yeah. This was what ninety. Uh, this was uh, ninety-two. For which God's we are, the only thing we're using IMDb for, honestly, is the years. Everything yeah. else is is legit. That's the truth. <laughs> yeah, ninety-two, man. Um, here's what I. It's interesting because I read this book. All right, well, why don't you probably have more context on how he got this gig? Than I do. So, how did John Carpenter come to direct a broad, FX-heavy Chevy Chase comedy? Well, the book isn't, and the novel was by a guy named H.F. Saint, and uh, was a pretty hot property when he came out. And it was *Memoirs of an Invisible Man*, and uh, Chevy Chase is the one who bought it, and immediately said, "Oh my God, this could be a totally different role for me. This could be something that I haven't done before." And uh, you know, we were talking earlier about the fact that John. does very strong work with lead actors. And so Starman got Jeff Bridges his nomination. It also got him a reputation as a guy who might be able to direct you to a nomination. Starman is an effects-heavy film. Starman has some humor. Starman also has the government chase. Starman has a lot of the same elements that the book, Memoirs of an Invisible Man, does. What it doesn't have is Chevy Chase (laughs) completely out of his mind Panicking halfway through production and realizing, oh my God, all I've ever done in my life is fall down and, and bump my head and make people laugh. Now, now I need let's to do be that fair here. I, I give Memoirs of, of an Invisible Man two and a half out of five stars. As a John Carpenter film, it's it's um, it's uh, what's the word? Unrecognizable. I could I can spot a John Carpenter film if you showed me four horror films and said which one does John Carpenter direct? I could tell you. But if you showed me Memoirs of an Invisible Man for the first time tomorrow, I would have no idea that John Carpenter directed that movie. So so let's pretend just for a second that it was a Joe Dante misfire. It's still not a terrible well, comedy. It's because the book wasn't terrible. Yeah, it's the a, book has some neat ideas. It's got, it's got a lot of limpness to it, but Sam Neill is quite good in it. There's some very clever special effects, and Chevy has some laughs. Well, it's ILM right before yeah. they did uh, Jurassic Park. There's a bit and where like half the building is, is, is invisible. Oh, it's really cool. And that's not even an effect. That's an actual practical set they built. Yeah, that's, that's really neat. Yeah. There's, there's neat stuff in it, and they had a great piece of source. And Sam Neill, before we knew who Sam Neill was, I remember even when did that come out? 90? The first time I saw Memoirs, I think, I like that actor. I didn't know Sam Neill from Sam Malone. Oh, I bet you did. Uh, You knew Final Conflict by that point. No, no. You didn't? No, I didn't. I knew Omen. I did not know Damien. I did not know Final Conflict. No, no. Oh, wow. And I still think Final Conflict is a bore fest, but... It is, but... But... Wow. It's a little sidebar. Sam Neill's been doing genre forever. Good up. Give it up for Sam. So, no, I think Memoirs of Invisible Man is a failure. It's not a good movie, but it is an interesting failure. It's and a noble it's a, failure. It's a it's, it's one of those backhanded compliments that we film critics like to use when we say it's not a good film, but you might want to check it out. It's got some moments and, and you know, but I don't see any, I mean, he does he talk about it? Does he like the film? Uh, no. And it was a really bad experience. Really See, I really think that he's always had bad studio experiences, and that's just not true. He's had several, but not not consistently. I mean, he didn't have any problems with Columbia. He didn't have any problems with uh, uh, Fox. Well, kind of. Well, you know, they abandoned him at the end, but they let him make that movie. And he has worked with pretty much every big studio. Yeah, he has. He has. He's made studio movies throughout his career. Um, but let's yeah, let's just just to say that Memoirs is not great and it's not as bad as you've heard and just move on. Next up. A uh, little higher on my list, but oh, yeah. much higher. To me, this is a return to form, and his last return to form until hopefully tomorrow night. Interesting, because I'm not a big fan. Yeah, of I know, movie. and I, I'm, I'm kind of in the majority here with the horror fans, because I, th- I know some horror fans who put In the Mouth of Madness right up there with some of the classics that we talked about yeah. in the early 80s, and I, I don't agree with that. I think it is a four out of five star Lovecraft meets 60s British horror in Haunted Town. Yeah, I, I, it's very Lovecraft, and, and it's um, 
Yeah, it's fine. It's it's okay. I, there's stuff I like about it. There's moments that I like about it. There's beats I like about it. And again, if he didn't do memoirs, he probably wouldn't have had Sam Neill for In the Mouth of Madness. Yeah. And without without an actor like Sam Neill, the movie could have been ten times more ridiculous. Yeah. And it's a little ridiculous, but overall, I just like what it's about. And it also feels kind of like a slap to Stephen King in a way. I just don't like the circular nature of it. Like, I, I there, there's a point where it's like, okay, uh, the meta thing starts to get a little obvious for me, and it's I, I'm not crazy about the way yeah. it folds in on itself at the end and things. I, I, there's stuff I like, but I just don't like the look of it. And here's a big point about that. Who did he do that one for? Was that that's Gary B. Kibbe? No, no, no. What, what, New Line, what, uh, what studio? New Line, and Mike DeLuca wrote it. Right. It, oh, was, okay. it was an early Mike DeLuca script, and, and New Line made it. But no, it was a moment where he was. Because look, for me, John Carpenter, big part of what makes him John Carpenter is the early cinematography. And oh my, and the music. Oh of my, of course. But oh my God, it's collaborations with Dean Cundey. Yeah. Uh, wow. Oh my God. Even as a kid, I again, I wouldn't didn't know a cinematographer from a costume designer. But I, by seeing his name in the credits, I slowly learned who Dean Cundey was, and you know. But then all, but then once he started working with, I, I'm not, I don't like Gary B. Kibbe, and I think, for me, a big part of the problem within the Mouth of Madness is it's lit like a TV movie. And that bugs me. Fair enough. That bugs me. And it just makes it look like a studio. Um, And, hey, you know, I I certainly... I've heard people say that one of the reasons they don't like this stuff we did with John is because, well, it's it's square and it's on TV and it looks like a TV thing. And so I certainly understand how frustrating that is to hear. Yeah. Just as a fan. No, I, you know, that's interesting. It. Next time I watch it, I'm going to watch how it's framed and how it's co- uh, com- composed because uh, it's not something I, and I haven't seen it in many years, but that wouldn't have been something that I would have looked at, say, six, seven years ago. Or, well, actually, yeah, that long ago I would have. All right. But, I'm backpedaling. I think it's a very creepy story about a, a horror author who delves into shit he shouldn't delve. And I agree, it, it, it kind of turns back on itself and therefore gets a little bit redundant in Act 3. But it still has some really good shocks in it. It's got, it's got the creepy kid right in You know, just random kills out in the middle of nowhere that are just scary. Um, All right, now yeah. the next movie is my second to last. Yeah, I, I think it's far and away his worst film. And, really? I, you know, that hurts me to even say that. Really? Because there's one that I think is worse, but we'll get to that. So um, we're talking about no, Village of yeah. the Damned right now. Yeah, now this, I, I I can only assume that he's a huge fan of the original film, which makes sense because he's a smart man and the original film is freaking fantastic. So is the book, yeah. Yeah, Midwich oh, um, and And, uh, but man, between Christopher Reeve and Kirstie Alley sleepwalking their way through it, the ridiculous look of the children, and just the flat, listless script. It is a terribly inert, like, almost laughable. I think it's the only movie in his filmography that you would actually consider it's pretty rough. laughable. Because it's trying to be dead serious. It's hard to, even though I don't like, like the next film we're going to talk about, I don't think it's laughable because it has a funny tone. Right. Um, I think Village of the Damned is like watching a good friend of mine get punched in the mouth, and I can't do anything about it. Yeah. That's how I just, let's just leave it at that. I'm sure he would agree with me, no disrespect. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a rough it's a rough watch. Chris Reeve is totally wrong for the movie. The adult cast doesn't work. The kid cast it, isn't interesting. Is it to me, or does it just sound like a studio owned the rights and wanted to bang it out, and he was available, and they just slapped it together in two months? That's what it feels like. Yeah, I've never heard him talk about this one yeah. at all, I, and that's it's rare that you can't even. And he's pretty garrulous sometimes. Isn't he? Yeah, yeah, I can I can get John Rowland on almost any movie he's made, uh, not that one. Yeah, you know what? You should be you should consider doing his, his biography and just doing each chapter be a film. <laughs> that that would be a book I, he, I would buy. He tells great stories. Most of them would probably get him uh, run out of town. So he so what? He can let you write it, and then you have to swear <laughs> that you have to publish it after his death. Hopefully in fifty years. Uh, yes. Yeah. So Village of the Damned is, uh, I think, execrable. Go ahead. Uh, next up is a movie that uh, I, I give it one point five because I never go down to one unless you're like Friedberg and Seltzer. Yeah. Number 16 for me out of 17. Uh, the next one is uh, pretty much... Uh, it's it's not well regarded. Uh, it's the first film, I think, out of the three that broke him, where he just gave up on the system after this. And it was supposed to be a much bigger movie. It was a big deal when they signed the rights to make this, when they were going to make this movie. And they announced it. And 
Have you ever read his original script? For Escape from L.A.? Yeah. No. It's great. I don't read scripts. I, I don't know why. I know. This was, but this yeah. was the, totally different age. And what I loved about it was, and it's something that I, I even preferred a little bit to Escape to, from New York on the page, was Escape from New York to me felt like the idea of New York as an island, so it should be a prison, very natural. Yeah. No, no, yeah. But they're not even just, yeah, it's a very good point. But then John's not a New Yorker, so I don't think his New York was necessarily making fun of or having total no, fun of. it was the with. iconic New York. Yeah, yeah it, was, it was kind of the big, broad idea of New York. Escape from L.A., Carpenter's lived his whole life in Los Angeles, so or his whole adult life anyway. So that script... He demolished Los Angeles. He wanted to lacerate the city. The original script was wicked satire and so dark and so much fun because he was specifically making fun of a town that he knew inside out. See, I think Escape from L.A. is so bad that it feels like a studio bought the rights and gave it to a shitty director. Mm. That's how bad I think Escape from L.A. is. I, I know that it has some cult fans out there, and I, some of them are just being loyal to the franchise, and some of them legitimately like the film, and God bless you. I can I will never watch it again. I think it is an affront. I, I can't watch it. it. It hurts. It feels like somebody imitating Carpenter and doing it poorly. Yeah, well, and it's a movie that, you know... It, it looks like it's shot in through mud. Well, it literally started life as a $75 million film. The special it, effects are horribly inept. A week and a half in, they yeah. cut $35 million from its budget. Suddenly you're making half the yeah. movie you were making. Well, that's another thing that we should all... That's another thing that film critics and film fans should always remember, is that it's easy to say, John Carpenter, yay, John Carpenter, boo, but in 99 times out of 100, there are always extenuating circumstances where somebody else deserves praise or blame just as much. So it's, you know, we're not ever putting anything on just on his shoulder. Yeah, it's it's frustrating because I know people wanted Snake back and they and certainly there was anticipation. They love Snake. People love him. And but it's see, a that's character. the difference. The tone of an 81 action film didn't exist anymore. Now we're talking about a 91 action film, which except for a few, uh, you know, major early 90s was like just completely just bombastic and empty headed action. Yeah, films. rough. You know what I mean? Like, you wouldn't get a diehard in, in 91. Well, his next Wait, movie... When did Die Hard come out? I didn't mean Die Hard. Yeah, I meant Escape from New York. Why did I say Die Hard? I don't know. But, but my point is, yeah. what you know, by, by 81, you, if he had come back and said, I'm going to do Escape from L.A. in the exact same tongue-in-cheek but dark tone as Escape from New York, they'd say, no, you're not. We want it with guns and humor and snark and, and crazy surfboard chases. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was. It needed to be bigger, and then they chickened out. Yeah, that's so. And, and, if, and now, do you think there's ever a chance that uh, he'll be able to do the the long rumored uh, escape from Earth? I don't think so. No, I think I think that died when Deborah died. Yeah, I think he was really he Deborah believed in it. Yeah, and I believe that's. I'm glad you mentioned her name. I mentioned it earlier too, but I, I believe we should dedicate this this conversation to his longtime friend and producer Deborah Hill, who. Uh, Big part of the equation. Yeah, and indispensable in my and I don't know much about the inner workings. There's a lot of people that are indispensable. Nick Castle, Tommy Lee Wallace, Deborah Hill. Mm -hmm. There are collaborators. Tommy Lee Jones. Who? (laughs) Tommy Lee Wallace. Sorry, Tommy Lee Wallace. Uh, There are collaborators who I think John would say absolutely. It broke my heart. You know, she's like she was a producer. She was John Carpenter's producer basically her whole career. That's pretty much what she was, and she'd done other things, but nothing as big as that so you know she was just like one of his guys and you never really think about those people but when I heard she passed away it really punched me in the gut yeah. it really hurt to hear that so yeah thank you Deborah, for uh, keeping John's best movies in check yeah and uh, Vampires was Vampires was next and that was the first of two movies made with Screen Gems Screen Gems AKA Sony should get the credit for almost running him out of the business. Sony, yeah, well, Sony is a uh, to to give a little insight. Maybe I'm wrong, and, and other people can, of course, correct me on this. But of all the studios, I, I would I would think, in my opinion, that Sony is the most assembly line rubber stamp, churn them out, just product oriented. Well, there's there's a couple of different divisions. Screen Gems is pretty independent. Clyde Culpepper is the head of that studio, mm-hmm. and Clyde's a guy who puts his hands on everything. He's kind of the way Harvey has been rumored to be, and Bob is rumored to be. Yeah, but uh, Screen Gems does a lot of genre, but I mean, not to be mean, but they don't seem to have a lot of quality control. 
Well, I know. That's what I'm saying. Is it's Screen Gems. It's just one dude, Clyde Culpepper. Mm-hmm. The taste that you get from a Screen Gems film, it's Clyde Culpepper. And so there was a lot of control issues on both of these movies. And promises were made that I don't think were kept. And they, the movies were not what the movies should have been. And in both cases, I think they pushed him pretty much to the breaking point in terms of liking filmmaking. Uh, Vampires, I know he had a lot of trouble with James Woods. And I think Vampires starts great. Yeah, I think there's some cool stuff in Vampires, it but starts it's half well. the movie. Yeah. yeah, it starts well. It has that great motel sequence yeah. where the world fucking ends. It's great. And then the movie, and then it's got Sherilyn... Uh, ben. No, Sherilyn Miller. No, Cheryl Miller. Cheryl Ann Miller. Cheryl Lee Miller. Cheryl Lee... Cheryl Johnny Lee Miller. Yes. <laughs> Miller's Crossing. Yeah, it's got uh, Laura Palmer tied naked to a bed for most of the movie. And that ain't a bad thing. Um, Look, there's there's not much way that you could make James Woods killing vampires boring. But by about 45 minutes into the film, you tell you can just tell that it's not going anywhere. Yeah. It's just it's just the gimmick. It's just the gimmick of let's have James Woods and his guys kill vampires, and that's not only fun for so long. Yeah, it, the the king vampires not doesn't work. It the movie just falls apart by the end, and the the next movie is the same way. And the next movie is, in my my opinion, number seventeen. The worst. It is the movie I cannot take. Really? I cannot take it. And it, You think Ghosts of Mars is worse than Village of the Damned? Yes, I do. Okay. I mean, I, we're splitting hairs here, but I don't get that. Yeah, I don't get Ghosts of Mars. I don't, I don't get it at all. I mean, I could watch Ghosts of Mars like I watch Resident Evil 3. I can't. Yeah. I just don't get it. I don't I don't get what's scary in it. I don't get what's I don't think it's good. It. I think it's a disappointing yeah. film, but I, I think it does have some cool stuff in it. And it's, uh, and it's like the, the 50th siege film. Yeah, it is another assault on Precinct 13, yeah. essentially. And, but with a dude who looks like uh, Marilyn Manson's Yeah, well, I don't get... Yeah, I'm not... I don't get why Cube, Mr. Carpenter thinks that, you know, a guy who looks like a 1983 punk rocker is the pinnacle of scary. I don't get that. I just think, I just think that movie didn't work on a lot of different levels. And I, and I feel like it was a movie where... Shouldn't have been. Shouldn't have moved forward. Would have moved forward. And then once it was moving forward, it was just we're going to make a movie. And I, I, I watch it and I can't feel Carpenter's heart in that movie at all. It's got. And that's the, that's. Though. But that's the thing that that's the most dispiriting thing to watch as a fan is when you don't feel like filmmaker was even on set. You yeah, don't again, any uh, of, I can. Him in it, you there's know? some, there's some shots, maybe some establishing shots, and some, some of the siege moments that that feel like Carpenter. But no, as far as the premise, the setup, the look of it, no, it doesn't feel like a John Carpenter movie. Feels like a bad Total Recall sequel. Yep. So essentially, those are the films, and you know, uh, we are very, very excited to see the Ward tomorrow night. Um, we are. We're, we're I know virtually it this week. Yeah, I know virtually nothing about the film. Uh, uh, did he do the music for the award? No, Cody did. His son did, and Cody did the score for our two films. Uh, oh. And that was where Cody made his debut doing score was nice. on Cigarette Burns. And you can hear a lot of John in Cody, uh, and I think it's a really interesting move to say I, I've done it. I like Cody's work. He does. He loves Cody's work. Cody has a band that John loves. Yeah, well, I remember him. I remember on one of the Russell commentaries, uh, they were just talking about their kids. And Car- and, and Carpenter kept saying, my kid's got a guitar. My kid's got a this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, no, I think Cody did the score for the ward. So, um, but it is scope again. And that's really exciting to see widescreen John again. Now, who, who bankrolled this movie? Do you know? Uh, Bigger Boat and... Bigger um, Boat, which is Peter Block's company. And Ambush Entertainment, I think, is Ambush. Which, which also bankrolled the film we saw tonight's uh, Super, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah, they also backed that. So yeah, I think I think bankrolled. Like I know what I'm talking about. I but think it's those two companies, and uh, and it's for sale up here, and obviously a lot of expectations. This is this is a uh, yeah, this but, is certainly but, a lot of a, a lot of eyes are on this one, right? And and, and of course, any John Carpenter film at Toronto Film Festival is going to have a lot of eyes on it. But Drew, we were here last year. And we saw a new horror film by a guy named Joe Dante, and that film still isn't out yet. Uh, I didn't get to see it last year, and I haven't seen it yet. Uh, I still haven't seen The Hole. It's called The Hole, by the way, and yeah. it's rather good. So, yeah, let's see what happens. I, I think tomorrow night's going to be a big night. It'll yep. be a very interesting one, and uh, I'm glad we did this. It's always fun to kind of go back over John's films and, and take a look at them. And 
I, uh, I certainly hope that uh, by the time this is online, we'll have our ward reviews up. And I certainly hope there are glowing reviews oh, about yes. a return to form. Because right. well, uh, and I, I do be, hope that this gives you guys some insight into that you, not that you need this insight, but just to reiterate that you can be a huge fan of a director and still have real problems with his films. There's no, yeah. you know, you you would think, oh, these guys are going to love his new one. Well, not if it, no. I mean, I just gave six of his movies in a row two stars. You know, yeah. I mean, we're not, you know, fans does not mean blind. That's no, all. It, just, I, I, it just means you have an appreciation for the work and a real understanding of what the body of it looks like. And, you know, perhaps I, will I walk into a John Carpenter film willing to be a little kinder? Yes. But if 10, 15, 40 minutes in, I'm feeling pain and I'm feeling weak script and I'm feeling choppy editing, I'm going to go, oh, man. But like Drew said, this was him being able to do work at his own pace, his own tone. And that's what we want. We don't want John Carpenter. Most of his bad films have come when he's had people breathing down his neck or cutting his budgets. And that is not the ward. So we do have high hopes for that reason. I certainly hope it works. Uh, Scott, thank you very much, man. Thank you. Uh, You can see my review of the ward later this week at Fearnet. And Drew's, of course, will be here at HitFix. And uh, also find me on Cinematical and Twitter. And... uh, Say hi, shout out to my cat, Jones the Cat. <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Take care. Thanks, bro. Dude, that was great. Yeah, that went well. How long was that? Uh, let's see. Oh, I don't know. It measures it in measures. Um, so we stopped.